Summer Show podcast. I do this a couple of times a week. You can subscribe at iTunes or find them anywhere you get podcasts, including Alexa. Say, Alexa, play the Heidi Harris Show podcast, and Alexa will gladly do it for you. In honor of Memorial Day and the sacrifices made by so many, I am going to rerun a fascinating conversation I had years ago with Ray Alcorn, Captain Ray Alcorn, and Major Stephen Long, both of whom had been held POWs, one for seven years, one for five years. Had a chance to talk with these men a little over 10 years ago, got to be friends with them, fantastic people. Sadly, both have recently passed away in the last couple of years, but it's such a powerful interview, and it's just a real gut check for anybody who takes their freedom for granted. So in honor of Memorial Day, in honor of the people who've given so much for all of us, here's the archived interview with Captain Ray Alcorn and Major Stephen Long. Welcome, gentlemen. I'm so glad to have you today. Thank you, Heidi. Thank you so much. You were being held in a camp with initially only four people, right, who were, who were shot down in Laos? Uh, I was the second prisoner that, to arrive in Hanoi that had been shot down in Laos. And uh, so I spent about eight months in solitaire before I was moved in with the other prisoner. So just the two of you? Yes, at, at that time. Uh, th- there was one other prisoner that, uh, from Laos, a civilian that was being held in a different camp. And in uh, November of that year, the uh, the fourth pilot uh, was brought into town, brought into Hanoi. Did so, you know who that person was? Were you able to have any contact with him at all? Uh, no, not well, uh, not, not initially. Uh, I think it was three or four months uh, after they were put together that eventually all four of us were were uh, located together in adjacent cells. It's got to be interesting to be in a cell, and the only other person is one other person in this whole world you see on a daily basis. What's that like, trying to work it out with a, with a roommate you wouldn't have chosen? Well, initially, uh, uh, after spending that much time in solitaire, all, we, all you did was talk. Uh, and after about six months of that, then we started listening to the other guy. <laughs> Did you did you wind up forming a friendship with this person you were you were in a cell with and how long were you were with with this particular pilot? Uh, we lived together, I guess, for about a year and a half, uh, and then we were separated. There was uh, periods that uh, both of us were, were put back in solitaire again, uh, and I guess after two years, I was put into a cell with another another prisoner that that had been captured from Laos. You have to adapt to a new roommate now. But but uh, we were always uh, held real close to to you know the cells that we were in were always adjoining, and so uh, for the first uh, couple of years there was just the four of us, and then eventually uh, additional prisoners were, were brought in. I can't imagine even the the, the lack of privacy in, in a dorm room, much less being held captive. And on top of all that, you were not treated well by your captors. You want to talk about that? Uh, how we were treated by our captors? Well. Uh, my uh, internment was characterized by the fact that I was shot down in Laos, uh, and therefore we were not declared prisoners. Uh, uh, we were always listed as MIA. The Viet- Vietnamese did not admit that they were fighting in Laos, so there was no way that they could have prisoners from Laos. Uh, and so our our internment differed uh, some, somewhat uh, from the other prisoners captured in North or South Vietnam. And your wife and family had no idea what had happened to you at this point? No, they they were never uh, informed as to our status as prisoners until uh, the end of the war when other prisoners were released. So four years. Now, you were married. You had no children at that time, right? That's correct. So you were married. Now, when, when well, we'll talk about the release in a little bit, but your captors did not treat you well at the time. Were they interrogating you, beating you, 
What kind of uh, behave, treatment were you getting? Well, the standard operating procedure for the Vietnamese had that, you know, initially when they uh, uh, capture you, they keep you separated uh, from other prisoners, so you, you're entirely in the dark. You don't know what other prisoners do to, to resist, uh, what methods that the Vietnamese use, you know, tactics that they'll use to get uh, uh, try to get information from you, and it's rough. I mean, if uh, they'll ask you questions, and if you don't answer, they beat you. Kind of questions they want to know what your mission is, things like that. How many men are are maybe going to look for you? How where the the ship is, and what kind of things do they ask? Uh, we were we were trained in school to give them four things: name, rank, serial number, and date of birth. So and obviously, uh, you know, they wanted much beyond that. Uh, type aircraft, uh, uh, missions, uh, capabilities, altitudes, uh, airspeeds, uh, other uh, squadron mates, uh, any kind of information that they could get. So you don't tell them and they just beat you worse? Uh, you resist giving them the, that information and uh, they beat you. So there's just not, there's obviously, what's their attitude toward human life when you have people like that who are your captors? Do they, do they consider you valuable when you're alive because of the possible use of you later? Or do they, I mean, try to explain the mentality of those who would uh, to beat prisoners like that. I think uh, probably the most uh, poignant uh, story that I heard was a prisoner that was interrogated and uh, the Vietnamese told him, you Americans, you think you're very important, you think your life is valuable, but we do not. You, we do not think your life is valuable. You are like a piece of sand on the beach. There are millions of you and you have no value. Interesting. So that was their attitude. Captain Alcorn, talk about the fact that when you first were captured, they told you something very interesting about their ability to win the war. Well, once they got whatever military information uh, they could from us, uh, and they knew that our military information became stale very, very rapidly, then they wanted us to be part of their political propaganda game. And at an interrogation uh, one day, the interrogator said to me, he said, we know that we cannot defeat you militarily, but we will win this war because we are fully aware that your population and your political system cannot withstand a prolonged conflict. And I sort of, you know, took that on board and and thought, well, very interesting for this person to say this. And it, as it ends up, he was absolutely right. That's interesting. Now, what did he, this, this was probably, a, since you were captured in December of 65, this was probably 66 that he was saying this. In 1966, yes, so inter- early on in the war. So interesting that he had that perspective. Was that based on what happened in Korea? And what did he, what did he base that assumption on? I think he could see what our political system was doing back here in this country. They, they received, uh, many, many of our newspapers, our magazines, and that type of thing. So these people were educating themselves on what was going on back back in this country. And they took a lot of their cues as to what they would do, how they would conduct the war, how they would react to various things from what was going on in this country. Captain Alcorn, what did you hear about Jane Fonda's visit? Anything at all? Well, I was told that she was there, and uh, we heard broadcasts over the radio speaker that was in our cells. And at one time, they told me I was going to have to go see her. Uh, I replied that that I would go. Of course, they would force me to go, but if they did it, I would embarrass them very badly. 
And uh, for some reason, they let me off on that, and I never did have to. Did they make other prisoners go and see her? I don't know of any prisoners that actually saw her there. Uh, there were other delegations that came, though, that guys were forced to go and uh, and see, at, but not Jane Fonda. Now, tell, tell me what you told me during the break. I thought I was more interested if they would uh, bring her to my cell and leave her there for a little while. <laughs> uh. Well, at least that's honest. <laughs> at least that's honest. Major Stephen Long, what did you hear about uh, Jane Fonda's visit while you were over there? Uh, uh, the only thing I heard was over the camp uh, propaganda radio that uh, she she was in town and she made uh, some anti-American comments. And, uh, uh, of course, being shot down in Laos again, we weren't asked to to uh, to go to anywhere with our publicity, the cameras, newspapers, or anything else, because we were we were being hidden. That's true. You weren't allowed to be uh, to be acknowledged. What uh, what did your captor say about her visit? Did they try to use that to intimidate you in any way, or say, "See what we said"? Nobody supports you, or anything along those lines. Yeah. Uh, yes. Definitely. Uh, uh, she's here is a very popular American movie character and she does not think the war is good you must not think the war is good then so what was the proper answer to something like that besides well what you can share on the radio if you responded to them and said you're full of it i still think we're here for an honorable purpose what would they have done beat you further our response to them was uh she's american she's entitled to her own opinion they didn't understand that, did they? No, they, they didn't. They didn't get that own opinion stuff at all. They didn't have their own opinion. Uh, they were told what their opinion should be, and they didn't understand that. Now, Captain Alcorn, talk about, because you were there from, from 1965, talk about how you found out a man had landed on the moon. We listened to, uh, or were made to listen to, a Vietnamese broadcast every evening called, we termed it Hanoi Hanna. Uh, the voice of Vietnam. Of course, it was an English-speaking program out of Hanoi, and uh, the guard was tuning in the radio one night and stops on a English-speaking station, except it wasn't the voice of Vietnam. It was a BBC broadcast. Uh, he stopped on that station thinking he had the right one, I suppose, just at the time when the BBC announced that for the first time in the history of man, <clears throat> first time in the history of the world, a human being has set foot on another heavenly body, and he immediately changed the station. And uh, that's how we first knew that uh, there was a man on the moon. Incredible. You're thinking, I'm stuck in the cell, and they put a man on the moon. Why can't they put one here and get me out of here, right? Well, that would, that would have been nice, uh, but... Uh, I've heard people say that in the normal lifespan of an individual, there might be one or two things that will go down in uh, the history, the major historical event. Well, I missed them putting a man on the moon. And as I thought about that uh, that statement, I found out a little later on, I, almost, I also missed miniskirts while I was there. <laughs> So uh, there were, I figure those are the two historical things in my life that, uh, and here I, here I was. I missed out on both of them. You are so funny. You are so funny. Major Stephen Long, talk about how you get through on a daily basis the deprivation, the torture, just the, the, the day-to-day life of a prisoner. How do, you get, how do you keep yourself mentally strong, physically strong? 
Well, I think first and foremost, you've got to have the opinion that, that someday this will be over. Someday we're going to go home. And uh, you've got to have a, have a positive attitude that, uh, that you can survive this. And when, when uh, it is over, then I'm going back to the United States of America, a proud and, and, and great country, and these people are going to be stuck here in this dirt hole. Mm, that's a good point. Now, obviously, because no one in your family knew you were there, you really didn't have, obviously, any encouragement from home or anything like that. So you had no way to know who was concerned about you or what the attitude was back home other than people like uh, Hanoi Jane, right? Yes. Uh, we knew that we were being treated differently because of the Laotian aspect of it. Uh, so we decided that uh, it was important that we communicate with the other prisoners uh, as much as possible, the prisoners captured in North Vietnam or in South Vietnam, uh, when we were in the same camps with them but but separated uh, in different uh, buildings, we would find ways to use the tap code or to leave notes, uh, anything we could do to communicate with the other prisoners to let them know that, that uh, there, there were prisoners from Laos in North Vietnam. It was important to get our names to them in the hopes that if somebody was released or somebody was able to write a letter home that maybe there was some means to get our name back to the United States, let them know we were in Hanoi. Now, what about the food and that kind of thing? I mean, did they did they try to halfway starve you? Did they feed you anything at all that was decent? I mean, how do you approach even something as simple as food? We were given two meals a day, uh, some kind of vegetable. Uh, we, we would get whatever was in season. We'd get three or four months of pumpkin soup, then three or four months of uh, rutabaker soup, and then three or four months of some kind of green stuff, uh, whatever was in season. So did you uh, did you eat it all? I've, I've read books from people who have been POWs in the past and or people who have been held in China and things like that, political prisoners, and they've said that pretty quickly they lose their aversion to things because they say, if I don't eat everything put in front of me, I'm not going to be able to maintain my strength. Did you uh, come to that kind of thinking? Well, that's true. We ate everything that was put in front of us. At least I did. Yeah. You know, and... Uh, uh, just uh, at the end, toward the end of the war, once they found out that the uh, the, the peace accords was going to be signed, we were allowed to. Uh, they would put small pieces of meat in in the soup. A uh, small piece of meat meaning a piece of uh, pig skin that was diced up. Yeah. That had uh, hair on one side and uh, fat on the other side. Yeah, I was guessing it wasn't a chicken breast or anything. Not exactly. Yeah, not exactly. <laughs> Captain Alcorn, what about you when you were on a, on a daily basis? How did you, how do you get through mentally? Well, I think, uh, as Steve said, you have to have hope. And uh, I still talk to some of our air wings, Navy air wings that train at Fallon, Nevada. And I tell them that the day that they get there is the day they need to start uh, planning to go home. I think uh, we had to maintain a faith and a, and a confidence in our country. Uh, we had to continually remind ourselves that our cause, in fact, was just because they were very interested in uh, having us change our minds and, as they would say, uh, cross over to the people's side. Uh, and I think there was also a a spiritual aspect uh you you needed something higher than what we normally experience here in our own lives. And uh, I don't think we had 
many uh, atheists walk out of uh, the prisons of Han- Hanoi. And did, you, did anybody ever have a chance to get a Bible or anything like that? I mean, that's probably a stupid question, but was there anything like that? They ever let you have anything along those lines? There, there was a few times during the seven years I was there that they, they did let us uh, have a Bible for maybe an hour, uh, and that, that was it. They would pass it around among the cells, but uh, uh, this didn't happen very often. So it's not like Guantanamo where you get the Quran and three meals a day. No, no, no. Oh, a little, quite. little different than that. Uh, we'll chat about that too in, in a few moments. What now, when Captain Alcorn? What were you hearing when you were hearing the propaganda uh, that you were you had more people in your camp? What kind of things were you hearing? What were your captors saying about uh, what they were gleaning from the American attitude about the war? Well, later on, as the anti-war protests became more prevalent in this country and uh, the films of it were distributed throughout the world, well, the Vietnamese had uh, these films too. And uh, there were a few times that they took us out and actually showed us films of the protests going on. Oh, lovely. Particularly in the Bay Area. You were held part of the time, Major Long, up there in Laos, but you guys were moved around quite a bit. We were moved around to various other prisons that they had. But uh, the Hanoi Hilton was really the big central prison in downtown Hanoi. That was the big one. Now, speaking of Hanoi Hilton, a lot of people, of course, John McCain leaps to mind. Did you know him or of him at any point? Uh, I knew of him, and I lived in the same camp with him at, uh, several times. But I was never in a cell with him, so I hadn't personally met him until after we got back. Now, how do you find out other people are there if you're not in the same cell? Is it the thing you were talking about earlier with passing notes, if you possibly can, or tapping on the walls, some kind of communication system so you're aware of who else is there? We did develop a communication system, and and just like here or anyplace else, uh, you had an organization, and communications within any organization is very important. Yeah, I would imagine so. And what about you, Major Long? Did you Were you able to develop a communication system such as he's describing among the few prisoners you were held with? Yes. Uh, we we communicated extensively, uh, uh, as I said earlier, because of the need to do that so we could get our name spread because we were being held incognito. Uh, we made uh, extreme efforts to, to communicate with as many people as we could. Because that was really important, obviously, to make sure that the other prisoners who might have a greater likelihood of someday being released were aware that you were in captivity so they could alert the authorities. Yeah, we we probably spent 80% of our awake time communicating or attempting to communicate with uh, with other prisoners. To try to get that word out. Yeah, now, now let's talk a little bit about how you both finally were able to be released. Uh, you first, Captain Alcorn, because I know that Major Long was released after you were. On January 27th, 1973, uh, there was a peace accord signed and the release of the POWs was a part of that accord. Uh, we were all, for the first time since we'd been there, let out into a courtyard at one time, and uh, a English-speaking Vietnamese read the accord and told us that we would be released. He didn't say exactly when, but within a couple of weeks, we were given uh, civilian clothing and uh taken out of the cells one morning. The first, uh, I was in the first group that was released, uh, taken to the Geelong Airport in uh, downtown Hanoi. And about 
3 o'clock that afternoon, uh, some U.S. Uh, Air Force C-141s flew in, and uh, we were standing on one side of a line that was painted out on the tarmac, and uh, there was an Air Force colonel standing on the other side. Our names were read off. Our names were repeated by the Americans, and we were hustled onto the airplanes and out of there. Can't imagine that feeling. Unbelievable. That must have been the longest couple of weeks of your captivity between the time that they told you you were going to be free and they actually let you go. That had to be unbelievable. I think by that time it was almost anticlimactic. Uh, we had uh, uh, fooled ourselves into knowing we were going to be released so many times, all on false pretenses. And uh, by this point, it was kind of, okay, you know, happens or it doesn't happen, you know. But... Uh, Amazing. Now, you were not married when you were held captive. Your parents were alerted after how many years in captivity? Did they even know you were alive? After four years, they finally, uh, I was allowed to write a letter home, and that's the first that they really knew for sure. They had been told after a couple of years that there was a good chance that I was being held as a prisoner, but uh, they didn't get uh, the true word until about four years. How was your adjustment when you first came back? What was the hardest thing to adjust to? Uh, I guess. But uh, then you can say on the uh, air. As, as some person once asked me, and I answered their their question was, "You mean what was the second? Yeah, I, I was just going to say what you could tell me on the air. Exactly. Besides, besides that, there had been a tremendous change in our society between 1965 and 1973. Uh, total different uh, moral standards uh, and. Uh, I think that was the hardest thing for me was was just a, you know adjusting to these many changes. There had been this huge protest within our country. Our society had changed. Uh, you know the amount of traffic, just going out and trying to drive a car. Uh, I was at Bethesda Hospital for a while, and and driving a car in downtown Washington D.C. was. Uh, a real challenge after having not done it a few years. I imagine, imagine so. Now, you continued your career in the Navy. I did. And you just, you just loved the Navy. I, I continued flying airplanes uh, off of aircraft carriers until uh, uh, I had a 30-year career in, and uh, then they made me quit. <laughs> That's incredible. Major Long, talk about your release. How did you find out you were going to be released? And wait, let me go back for a second. How did they even know you were there? You were one of the prisoners who really didn't exist. How was it that your name came up and you were able to be released? Yes, as uh, Ray was saying, uh, they had the peace accords, and uh, part of those peace accords were that a list of prisoners would be exchanged between uh, uh, the parties, United States and uh, in Hanoi. And uh, that list uh, was exchanged. Uh, our names were not on it. The names of the prisoners captured in Laos was not on it. And it wasn't until Ray's group came home, uh, and of course they were immediately debriefed by intelligence uh, divisions, and uh, some of the first names that they said were Long, Stisher, Bettinger, and Brace. Uh, the four of us that had been up there for four years and, and for the longest time <clears throat> and had uh, communicated extensively, so it had paid off. Uh, the fact that we, we had tried to, so hard to disseminate our names so the uh, intelligence division went, uh, gave that information to the State Department. The State Department told 
North Vietnam, hey, look, we know you have prisoners captured in North or captured in Laos, and if you do not release them, then we will resume the bombing of Hanoi with the B-52s. And the Vietnamese came up with not only the four names that everyone knew, but also the other, the other six uh, prisoners that were captured in Laos. That's incredible. Now, what was the hardest thing for you when you uh, were finally released? What was it like readjusting to life? Now, you had been married when you were captured, but no one knew you were alive for four years. So when was the first time your wife and your family found out that you were alive and free? Well, when, the, when they got the information from the prisoners, uh, from the other, first prisoners came home, uh, our families were told that, uh, that we were up there. Uh, Ray was released uh, on the 12th of January. Uh, we were told at that time, uh, Vietnam War is over, Vietnam prisoners go home. When Laotian War is over, then Laotian prisoners go home. We were told we weren't going home. But because of the fact that uh, other prisoners knew who, knew that we were there and got the information out, eventually uh, we went through the same process that Ray did. Uh, we were given civilian clothes and told that we'd be going home uh, soon. Uh, on 28th of March, two months after the peace accord was signed, finally we, the Laotian prisoners were on the last airplane to come out of Hanoi. Unbelievable. So when you got home, what, what, uh, what was the situation with your wife, your family? Well, I was uh, uh, given a letter from my wife saying that uh, that uh, we were divorced. Uh, my family was, uh, of course, uh, exuberant, uh, very just overcome with happiness that I had survived. Amazing. So how was the adjustment? Well, the miniskirts weren't completely out of this season. <laughs> so uh, my, my problem was getting enough sleep. Yeah, I had, I had the uh, the adrenaline running, and I was only sleeping three or four nights or hours a night. You had a lot to catch up on. Yeah, I'd wake up in the middle of the night and go out and jog, just to get just to be out and be free. Just just to burn it off and and experience the freedom. You know, you can't imagine not having freedom until you don't. You never have a bad day when there's a doorknob on the inside. Boy, isn't that important? How many days were you held captive, Major Long? Fourteen hundred and ninety. I wanted to make an even fifteen hundred, but. They, they, I said I had to go. Because I asked you during the break how you kept track of time. You literally counted the days, I guess. Exactly. What you have to do? How about you, Captain Elkhorn? You got him beat by a few. 2,610. Unbelievable. Because there's no preparation for being a prisoner. I mean, nobody, you know, no matter how much training they give you, no one can prepare you for the deprivation, the torture, the, the, uh, the isolation, and the mental toll that it takes on you to be a prisoner. That says it all. There's, there's no way you can prepare for this. Let's talk a little bit about what's going on now with the war and some of the propaganda, because you both experienced comments and things like that made by your captors when the anti-war protests were taking place here in America as you were being held and celebrities were mouthing off as you were being held. What, what are your thoughts today on what's going on, Major Long? Well, I, I think there's a lot of people that draw parallels with uh, Vietnam in, in today's war. And to me, uh, they, they choose to only look at some aspects of it. Uh, I think the most important thing that, that we learned from Vietnam was that politicians should not be dictating military tactics. The politicians should let the military people run the war and mind uh, the, the political business at home. But well, you would have thought that, wouldn't you? You would have thought there had been some lessons learned by now. The uh, Our enemies capitalize on uh, those sentiments and pick it up and use it. And, and people who say negative things about uh, the war 
and that becomes tools for our enemies. That's so important. Captain Alcor, what do you think about things like Harry Reid saying the war is lost? Well, I think that is such a mistake for a politician to say something like that. But I, I also hear a lot of people saying, well, I do not support the war, but I support the troops. Yeah, how can, how can you do that? And, and that is impossible. Uh, as, as I mentioned a little bit ago, the Vietnamese knew what was going on back in this country. They knew that the anti-war protests were going on, and they told us a little bit about it. But it wasn't until we got back home that we really found out what the extent of that protest was. And uh, the anti-war protesters say, well, we were trying to help you. How they helped me was they extended my stay in the prison camps of North Vietnam because they gave our enemies hope. And that is exactly what the anti-war movement is doing in this country today. And if you think al-Qaeda is not listening and paying attention to what's going on out in our streets, boy, you're missing the boat. It's just amazing. I mean, this is a free country. People are allowed to have an opinion about the war that's contrary to the president's. But it seems to me that the politicians, especially anybody who's a high-profile person, should you know quietly talk to the president and say, I disagree, but certainly not publicly. To me, that's the distinction, because it does embolden the enemies, as you mentioned. It certainly does. It gives them hope. To set a timetable that we will pull our troops out of a conflict is so utterly ridiculous. I, I just can't believe that anybody buys that line. Well, that's what's so scary about it. It's, and and I, you're right. Some of them do think that they are supporting the truth. Well, we just want, want to get you out of there, but don't they understand that we'll just make our whole nation weaker? That's the question. Wouldn't you say, Major Long? Well, yes. All the negativity is uh, simply becomes tools of the enemy. It's counterproductive to uh, our military that is trying to, to uh, attain its goals of get, providing for a democratic Iraq. It's amazing. You uh, you had mentioned that the politicians shouldn't be running the war. I got an email from uh, a friend who's over there right now in Iraq. I can't be any more specific than that, who was serving. And he said there was a situation that came up just this last week where there were some guys planting IEDs, which are killing lots of our soldiers, as we know. This group was planting IEDs. And the problem that this group, well, the, the group had used women as lookouts, knowing how sensitive we are to the women. So... Because there were no female soldiers who could go over and interrogate these women or frisk them because we had to be sensitive, they just pulled back and didn't even investigate these guys when they knew these guys were planting IEDs and they're going to continue to plant them. They're going to continue to kill our soldiers because we're concerned about political correctness and sensitivity, cultural sensitivity. And it just makes me insane because the enemy doesn't have any cultural sensitivity. What do you say to that, Captain Alcorn? Well, you know, I think we're... We're facing an enemy like we have never faced before. And and probably since World War II, uh, we now have the greatest threat that our nation has ever faced. Uh, and there are things that we are going to have to do uh, in order to win this war. And if we don't, then our society, our culture, our government, our nation, as we know it, is going to go away. That's very important. Now, Major Long, you spent four years as a captive. You were you were tortured. What are your thoughts on torture with the prisoners we're holding in Guantanamo Bay or anyplace else in the world? Uh, all uh, human, all human have value. Human life has value, and you have to respect that. Uh, I don't think that that our, our enemies. Uh, 
have the same values that, that we do for, for human life. And we have to treat our prisoners in a, in a manner which is uh, as at least dignified. But if you have things like this waterboarding that we've heard about, where basically you make a person feel like they're drowning, to me that's probably very uncomfortable, but a little different than, you know, slicing off fingers and things like that. Would you, would you classify that as torture, Major Long? The waterboarding? Mm-hmm. Uh, I've never experienced it myself. I n- never heard the Vietnamese doing it, but as I understand it, it, it can be quite frightening. I'm, I, uh, but it's frightening torture, though. It's not as if they're, uh, you know, cutting limbs off or things like that. Is there, is there a distinction to be made, or, or do you not think so? Well, this ain't Sunday school, so uh, I think that they're, uh, you, you know, you have to ha- have respect for the other human being. So don't up the ante that far if you don't need to. Exactly. But what if you feel that person has definite information? What, would you go as far as something like waterboarding to get the information out of somebody? Would you recommend that our military be able to do that? I th- if it if the information they have is, uh, can, can save an American's life, then yes, they should be able to do it. Mm-hmm. What do you say, Captain Alcorn? I, I agree with that. Uh, we do have to treat people with respect, but uh, we cannot sit around and be totally politically correct. Uh, under a circumstance where there might be cities or large portions of our country that are in severe danger, and maybe we would be able to prevent a horrendous act from happening. Uh, we need to do whatever we can do. I, I agree with you that, in that I value human life, and you, but you say we need to treat everybody with respect. And some of these people are just evil monsters who, in my opinion, are not deserving of respect. Is, am I wrong on that? Well, uh, I think you are, yes. I, I, I think we need to, uh, if, if we don't do this, then we drop ourselves to the same level as they are, and uh, we don't want to do that. Well, that's the argument that's been made. That is the argument. Would you, would you encourage young men and women to join the military right now, Major Long? Uh, to, yes, I would. I think it's uh, uh, a very honorable uh, goal uh, to have, and I, you know, one of the things that I learned, uh, this was my first assignment when I went to Vietnam. They, they told me it would get better after that, but uh, it did get better after uh, Vietnam, right? Yes, it did. Because uh, you went on to, fi- to finish your career in the Air Force. Yes, I, yes, I did. When I got back, I had uh, what six years of service, and uh, they told me that I could fly airplanes if I wanted to stay in, so I did, and uh, had a had a wonderful career after that. Amazing. What about you, Captain Alcorn? What would you What would you advise young people today about a military career? Well, I think if you look at all the opinion polls, the military probably has has the highest uh, rating of any occupation in our country today. So, uh, hey, if you want to be at the top of the line, uh, hey, go military. Absolutely, absolutely. And of course, you you would say, Captain Alcorn, the Navy's better, and you, Major Long, would say the Air Force is better, right? Yes, I do. I think one of the lessons I learned was that it's not, it doesn't matter so much what you're doing, it's who you do it with. Yeah, that mm-hmm. is, that's so important. It's, and truly, truly, there are heroes out there like you guys, and it's, uh, it, you know, it's humbling. It's humbling to have, to have met you, and I've had the privilege of knowing you both for, for several years, and, and it's, it's been an absolute privilege, and uh, I can't imagine what you have gone through. And I know there's, you know, there are lots of things about it that I'll never know, and I don't want to know, probably, probably better off not knowing how much you suffered, but I'm just, uh, I'm so grateful for you. Something you told me, Captain Alcorn, the other day was how uh, some of the uh, captives had been assigned a certain number of names to remember. We had memory banks, uh, Mm -hmm. 
uh, and that's right. Certain people were assigned certain things that we needed. We knew we needed to get out of there uh, or bring home with us. And, and as Steve said, you know, these guys' names that we knew uh, that may possibly never come home, we needed to get that out. That was unbelievable. So it's a real camaraderie. Uh, do you see each other often at reunions? There were how, almost 600 released. How many do you think were left behind? Let me ask you that first. How many do you think were left behind, Captain Elkhorn? Uh, I have absolutely no idea. I don't know that there were any left behind. You feel, you, you're you not certain that there were any left alive behind? I'm not certain of that, no. What about you, Major Long? Uh, in my opinion, uh, we accounted for everybody that was in the, the prison system, the normal prison system in North Vietnam. Now, if there was another prison system in Laos or Cambodia or something, uh, there was no mixing up of the prisoners exchanging back and forth. It would have been a, a line drawn. I think the worst thing to, for a family would be to never know. Thank you, heroes. Captain Ray Alcorn, Major Stephen Long, you guys are heroes, and it's been an absolute privilege. Go Navy, beat Air Force. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Heidi Harris. What a thrill it was to talk to those two incredible heroes. Stephen Long passed away a few years ago, and Captain Ray Alcorn passed away just in the last year. So it was really my honor and privilege to get to know them. Incredible, incredible people. Hope you appreciated this podcast. Please subscribe for future podcasts. And don't forget, I do a live radio show five days a week, 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. on AM 670K MZQ in Las Vegas. All the information about that is at HeidiHarris.com. Until we meet again, remember, you were created for a purpose. Here's Tony Scottwell. (laughs) 